Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer, whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live a wise and wealthy life. So today's guest is Dr. Josh Luke. He was a sports marketer and he was having a fun career and then his grandma got sick. And he started watching in amazement and frustration at the way she was treated when she didn't have all the money needed for the treatments that were being prescribed. And he not only saw that, he saw the lack of communication and coordination among different nodes in the system and stuff just didn't make sense. It just didn't look like a system that was set up to help people get better. He saw unavailable, unavoidable pain and suffering, and he kind of decided that sports marketing wasn't that important to him anymore. And so he jumped into healthcare. And he worked his way up. He became eventually the CEO of a small hospital and then of a larger hospital. And as he made his way in the business, he began to learn about and began to tackle the roots of the dysfunctions that he saw from the sidelines of his grandmother's illness. Now he's an author, a speaker, an academic, a consultant, a humorist. Um, and he shares his vision of this dystopian American healthcare landscape as well as on the ground prescriptions for change. And I titled this episode The Six Words That Killed the American Healthcare System because that's the title of one of Dr. Luke's keynotes. And quite frankly, it's a great marketing lead in because it makes us all want to know what those six words are. So we'll we'll get to that and why they are so dysfunctional. And we're also going to be encouraged by Dr. Luke to become EHCs, engaged healthcare consumers which is to say people who evaluate medical treatment with the same eye towards value and risk as we deploy when we shop for things like cars, homes, toasters, smartphones, pretty much everything else except for healthcare. When the doctor says, this is what you need, we say, okay, and we don't ask and we don't think, and very often that's to our detriment. A couple of quick announcements before we get started. A whole bunch of stuff is happening in the WellStart world. Three things I got to talk to you about. One is end of March, we're doing another coach training. So if you're interested in becoming a wellness coach, or if you are a wellness coach, and frankly, you've realized that your training hasn't enabled you to predictably help people, that it's kind of hit or miss, and you, you're a little bit frustrated that you're not having better progress, that people are making strides, but then slipping back. If that's frustrating to you, we have a training that provides a reliable process to help people change. 
So you can check that out at wellstartcoach.com. You can read all about it and you can apply for um, an enrollment interview so we can decide together if this is going to be a good fit for you. Second thing is Wellstart Health is starting another consumer-facing cohort on March 4th. So if you would like to turn your own health around, your own health destiny, your habits, if you want to get control over your eating, and boy, people who don't have control over their eating, and I can tell you this from experience, we don't have control over a bunch of other things in our lives, like our tempers, uh, our finances. And eating is one of those levers that we can pull that can really affect everything else in our lives. It's, it's the food is a, a very upstream phenomenon. If we get that under control, then a lot of the downstream stuff starts to take care of itself. So if you're interested, go to wellstarthealth.com slash program. We can read all about it. And I believe at this point you can sign right up. There's no more uh, long application process. You can just give us some details, give us a credit card, and you'll be in for that March 4th cohort. Finally, Wellstart Health is running a clinical trial for people with type 2 diabetes to try the Wellstart program for 12 weeks, and we're going to measure pre-post so that we can publish this data and prove to the world that lifestyle medicine, that an anti-inflammatory diet high in plants really works. The study is open to adults with type 2 diabetes in the following states, Texas, New York, New Jersey, California, Louisiana. So if that's you or someone you know, we would love for them to go to therebootstudy.com, read all about it, and see if it would be a good fit. And if you have access to a large community, if you're an influencer, a healthcare professional, a pod leader, and you have a whole bunch of people that you could reach in one of those states, uh, get in touch with me. I'll send you our flyers. That's uh, Howard at wellstarthealth.com. I think that's a pretty good segue into a conversation about how to fix healthcare from the bottom up. So without further ado, Dr. Josh Luke, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, so I came across you and your story when I was reading up for the World Congress Healthcare um, Conference in Washington, D.C., and there's lots of very impressive people who are on the roster who are speaking, but there was no one remotely as entertaining as you. <laughs> so I, I figured whatever you know, this is going to be fun. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I, I, uh, the more I've gotten into public speaking, the more I've realized this is about entertainment. You better have uh, some good facts that uh, are going to be new to people that are going to get them to think and stimulate thought. But I also focus a lot on entertaining them with those stories that led me to understand um, that our healthcare system is a system broken beyond repair. So there's some fun stories about my kind of career upbringing, if you will, uh, that when I share them, they provide a good visual and graphic for folks to understand why I saw what I saw and how it impacted me and how it helped me understand that this system is broken beyond repair and that we need to work together to come up with some new creative ways to live healthier and to just focus on um, really reducing the healthcare burden in America, both financially and in terms of access. Yeah. So, um, and I know you're, you're a public speaker, you do this for a living. So anyone who has a budget and an interest in healthcare. Um, let's let's start out with that. Like, who do, who do you speak to just so the people who are listening can uh, can figure out if uh, if they're if, if you know, they're, they're someone who should give you a call? 
Yeah, so um, it's a great question. So to give you a little brief history on on how my career has evolved in recent years, well, let me get, let me give you kind of the whole history. So I actually grew up in in graduate school. I wanted to work in sports marketing, and and so many folks did. But check this out: I had two older brothers that were professional athletes, and I remember my senior year in high school, sitting on the bench at my varsity basketball game, watching my teammates play, going, "Hey, you know, maybe <laughs> God didn't bless me the same way He blessed my brothers. Maybe I should be more realistic about my career goals, since it doesn't look like I'm going to be a pro athlete. Maybe I can work with pro athletes." And I did that for a few years, but when my grandmother got sick, and I grew frustrated with. Um, really two components of her care, A, her inability to afford basic access to care, and B, the lack of communication between her uh, caregivers at the hospital and the nursing home and assisted living. It just, I grew very frustrated, and it was about the same time I got married, and I woke up the day after I got married and said, gosh, this sports marketing thing just doesn't seem that important anymore. I want to maybe switch careers to a career that where I can make a difference, have a social mission. I found myself with an opportunity to go into healthcare about six months later. I made that jump, and within about three or four years, I was asked to be the CEO of a hospital, a small aging hospital in Southern California. And the reason they thought somebody that had never worked in a hospital would be an ideal CEO for their organization was because they had five nursing homes right across the street. And those nursing homes had lost confidence in them. So they said, hey, let's go get a nursing home guy, train him on the job on how to run hospitals. Just a small hospital, had two campuses, but one of those uh, units was a nursing home and one was a behavioral health unit, which I had a lot of experience in on both. So uh, we were able to make that work. We had a great four-year run. And then uh, after four years there, I got recruited to go across town and be the CEO at at a bigger hospital. And so after three years there, uh, I found myself about the time Obamacare passed out of a job because there was a new uh, new or, uh, CEO came in, found myself out of a job, went out to Las Vegas and become the CEO of a Health South Acute Rehab Hospital. Did that for about a year. And part of the reason I came back to Southern California is I said, whoa, this Obamacare thing, this Affordable Care Act thing is really going to change the game. It's no longer about providers putting a head in a bed. It's about everybody being forced into an insurance model, including the hospital, because they're now going to be the largest expense in the model. So um, not only is the hospital going to change their business model, be forced to, but post-acute providers are really going to have more accountability than they've ever had. And what I mean by that is in the nursing home and home health, you could always just put a head in a bed and nobody could say no. And that gig was up because the day of pre-authorizations came when Obamacare passed. So, so help help us understand. So, what what part of Obama? Because I've I've talked to people on all sides of the political spectrum who have such varied opinions of Obamacare in general. But what what specifically? What specific um, part of Obamacare changed the hospital system from from head in a bed? to to something else and what was that something else great question you know and and it and it's one most people haven't heard of it's not the accountable care organization or the bundled payment initiative bpci but those are the two the name that we call those is alternative payment models apms there's two types of apms introduced by the affordable care act uh, ACO, which is just a fancier name for an HMO for those Gen Xers and boomers that lived through the 80s. We all know what an HMO is. It was a bad word. And uh, then bundled payments, which was kind of this new way of saying, hey, even though Josh's grandma's broken hip cost us almost $300,000 in the summer of 2002 because we were all just gouging the system for whatever we could get, how about if we just give you $25,000 hospital A, and you're responsible for making sure that hip gets taken care of because our evidence, our data shows us that if done properly, 
uh, we can do this hip surgery successfully for $25,000, which includes the doctor, the hospital, and post-acute care. So this is is like me, instead of submitting my expenses for a trip, getting given a per diem. And if, and if I if I live if I stay in a hostel and and eat uh, mac and cheese, I can keep the difference. Yeah, and that's exactly right. It's kind of a gain share. If you do well, you can keep the difference, and that's considered a bonus. But but so to finish that thought, the thing nobody really ever heard of because it wasn't a law, it was just, wasn't legislation. It was just a goal that the Obama administration rolled out called Better, Smarter, Healthier. And what it said was, hey, hospitals, we're not going to force you into ACOs. We're not going to force you into bundled payments. There was only ever one mandatory bundled payment, and they've already scaled it back. But what they did say is those are the two types of APMs, alternative payment models. But what we are going to challenge you to do, and this was in 2015, they said by the end of 2016, we want 30% of all of your Medicare claims through an APM. And by the end of 2018, we want 50% of them through there. And so what hospital administrators did is they kind of said, oh, gosh, this seems like they're finally pushing us to have to do this. But the question was, can you actually do something halfway and stop? Of course you can. Once that ball starts rolling and you get to 50%, you have to get to as close to 100% as you can right away because you're running contradictory business models. And so that's why uh, I think 2017 was really the the year that hospitals finally said, oh, my gosh, we got to do this. We got to get to value-based care whether we like it or not. Because the other thing that happened that year that changed the game was the hospital industry and the insurance trade, you know, two of the most powerful lobbies in the country were both crossing their fingers for a, a Republican president and a Republican majority so they could undo the Affordable Care Act. Well, they got what they wanted in terms of a Republican president and majority, but they didn't get the undoing of the ACA. And what they realized very quickly after Trump was elected was there is no money in the Medicare fund. We cannot go back to a system that has no checks and balances with no accountability, which is what the fee-for-service era was. So the answer to your question about what what was really the main thing that made them transition. It was a goal called Better, Smarter, Healthier that the Obama administration laid out that the Trump administration has never really addressed, but they don't need to because as much as they've tried to undo the Affordable Care Act and they've been unable to, they realized that that an insurance model, whatever the name is, whether it's a bundled payment or an ACO, is really the only way to move forward right now where there is accountability, where uh, criteria is king, and you can't just have doctors and facilities, providers, admitting patients that don't need care and billing for them. So it's got to be criteria-based. And now, if you're a post-acute provider, you need a pre-authorization before you'll get paid for care, which you didn't in the past. Okay. So, so I understand now that there's financial accountability but what are the other accountabilities? Because I'm thinking now of, you know, the horror stories that we've heard about, like for-profit detention centers who are getting so many dollars ahead and their financial model is to spend as little of it as possible on refugees or, you know, for for-profit prisons. So how, how are hospitals being held accountable for not only costs, but outcomes? You know, I won't claim that this is an area of expertise for me, but, you know, as you're specific to refugees and the terms being used to describe that. But what I will say is the state of Maryland was one of the first to go to this kind of concentrated uh, model where they say, hey, here's how much money flowed in last year through Medicare and Medicaid. What we're going to do is just take that same chunk of money and divide it up evenly based on the number of patients that were cared for and the number of dollars that were billed. 
and we're going to prepay you. And so what that means for a hospital and a nursing home is we want to provide as little care as possible. So because we, we've got the money up front, it's an insurance model. And, and what happened is they took this uh, really slow wading through the weeds of the Affordable Care Act transition that's now eight years in and has been very slow. Okay. And in the state of Maryland, overnight, they said, you are now an insurer. So watch how quickly those behaviors change because every ounce of care you provide, every supply you use, every hour of labor you pay is an expense. And that is what the American healthcare system is transitioning to is an insurance model. However it looks, here's the amount of money we have. Your incentive is to not overutilize, just to provide them enough care to live healthy and, uh, you know, whatever money's left at the end of the month, uh, you get to keep. So what, what does this mean for consumers? Uh, what, how, do, how do we, like, you know, now that we're beginning to understand that healthcare is a business and it's not just a thing we use and that there are incentives involved, what do we need to know in order to protect ourselves and our loved ones? Great question. So, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Howard, when we were back at uh, at the World Healthcare Congress, there were so many people there that have these innovations, these concepts, these ideas, and and when you sit around with those folks, they're they're funny, they're great, they're knowledgeable. They've had access to this stuff for a lot of years, but there's one inherent issue and problem: they're brokers and benefits advisors, which means their credibility isn't always what you would hope it would be when there's when they're talking about these things because they're perceived to be selling. And I'm not taking anything away from them. They're brilliant. They've taught me so much. But when Forbes was looking for uh, an author to write a book for American businesses to keep, teach them how to keep costs down, they interviewed a number of them and then they interviewed me and they, they found me on LinkedIn. And if we're not connected on LinkedIn, let's connect. It's Dr. Josh Luke on LinkedIn. And um, they saw that I just take other folks' stories like yours and share them and put a few comments on. It's called Short Form Media. I've written for LinkedIn's Healthcare Pulse. I write for Forbes. And I really love short form media. And short form means I don't have to sit down and pen a thousand word story. I just take a story that Howard wrote and say, wow, what a great story. Here are the two or three lines that stood out to me and how they're going to impact you. And over time, I've built a following of almost 40,000 people on LinkedIn because I share these uh, stories and I do daily videos about healthcare affordability and reducing the healthcare burden on on businesses and folks in America. But when Forbes called me back and said, "Hey, we want you to write this book," we've interviewed a bunch of other people, but they're all brokers and advisors, whatever they're calling themselves. They're selling, and you're not. You're just selling transparency. You're a hospital CEO who's pulling back the curtain on the industry and saying, "Gosh, this stuff doesn't make sense, and we need to expose it for what it is." And uh, I didn't really set out to do that, but the more questions I asked, the fewer answers I got. And I think we're moving towards a time of transparency. So in January of this year, Forbes Books released uh, my, my book, and it's called Health Wealth, Is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business? Nine Steps to Financial Recovery. It came out in January of 2018, and with the Forbes muscle behind it, I was blessed it went to bestseller, number one bestseller on Amazon on day one. It was really exciting. And uh, we've been touring the country and talking to businesses and individuals about how to reduce their health care costs, both personally and from a business perspective, because the answer uh, to the, the title of my book is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business is yes, in almost every instance. Let's think about the companies that have literally declared war 
on healthcare costs and the model just since my book came out January 18th. Let's listen to this list of companies that have said, we have to start over, we can't do this. Amazon, JP Morgan, Berkshire Hathaway, Walmart, Disney, Apple, on down the line, they've all said, we have to make a massive, massive change as in regard to how we provide healthcare benefits to our employees because it's bankrupting our business. It's our number two expense. It's the only one we can control and enough is enough. You know, inside the the industry, all those brokers and benefits advisors I, I mentioned that you and I hung out with back in DC, they call the healthcare insurers the cartel. The cartel that runs up the price every year unjustifiably pays the hospital more and passes the costs on to business and individuals. And America's at a tipping point where both businesses and individuals can't afford health care. And I, I'm proud to be uh, part of the movement that can uh, really push us over the tip, the top. So we declare that tipping point and say enough is enough. And Howard, on that note, uh, in January of 2019, I'll be releasing a book called Health Wealth for You. And it's a lot of the same concepts that I introduced to businesses in my nine steps to financial recovery, such as um, a lot of functional medicine concepts. So let's talk about a couple of those from Health Wealth. And one of them is, um, I, I suggest that companies pay for a full genome sequence or DNA test for all their employees after one year on the job as a retention incentive so they can get their pharmacogenetic makeup so they know which medicines work and which ones don't. I suggest that uh, companies pay for a, what I call an integrative medicine or functional medicine consult, which I know is an area that, that your company, Wellstart, is, is specializes in on how to just live healthier to prevent disease to reduce the likelihood of chronic disease, uh, things along those lines. Direct primary care is another one, where if you're a large enough employer with a large enough concentration of employees on one campus or in one city, there's a better way to get imp improved primary care, but also reduce your costs and on primary people, care. For people who aren't familiar with DPC, can you explain what direct primary care is and how it's different from our family doctor or, or local yeah, practice? Yeah, sure, and it's evolving quickly, and I think everybody would provide a different um, explanation, but let me give you kind of a one-minute explanation of, of how a layman like me sees it. Instead of a company paying $10 million a year to Blue Cross or Blue Shield or Aetna or Cigna or somebody, they say, hey, this year we're only going to give you $6 million and it's going to be more for catastrophic stuff, just like it would be with car insurance or life insurance, which is just catastrophic, right? Have you ever thought about that? Healthcare is one of the only insurances in America where it covers everything, including your basic primary care bread and butter, not just catastrophic care. So they're going to peel off $4 million and say they're going to go to this medical group across the street from their, their um, campus of four or 500 employees or in a city where they have five or 600 employees plus family members and say, hey, we're going to give you $3 bucks on January 1st. For that $3 bucks, all of our employees and family members can do walk-in appointments from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. daily. You're also going to provide a 24-7 telemedicine component. Okay, you're also going to provide a 24-7 call line that these patients can call in with the goal of, let me explain those second two of those three pillars. Telemedicine and uh, a hotline are meant to reduce overutilization, not encourage or enhance it. So it needs to be all part of the three-punk system to say, hey, only come into the clinic if you don't think we can resolve your need over the phone or over uh, your iPhone. Uh, but when you do, you can walk in anytime. Uh, it's all covered. There's no copay. And um, now 
the unnecessary referrals to specialists, the overutilization of costs, all these things, you start to see that the physician, your primary care doctor's interests are more aligned with yours, which is just to be healthy. And uh, one of the biggest wasteful areas in healthcare spending is this disconnect between primary care doctors and their patients and them just running a bunch of tests and referring them to specialists unnecessarily. And the one thing that is constantly, constantly emphasized with DPC, direct primary care, is that your doctors can spend an average of 15 to 20 minutes per appointment with you instead of uh, less than three minutes, which is the average. So it's an exciting new concept. Wait, and the average is less than three minutes? The, the data I've seen is less than three minutes for the actual physician. And, and, and probably a lot of that is spent with them on their computer, just sort of glancing up. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of stories about how that three minutes they're looking at their phone or, or not really listening to you, but reading what the nurse wrote and not really developing that interpersonal relationship with you to get a sense for what you're truly feeling. So and I'm not here to slam on how bad doctor's bedside manner is, but I mean, that's how I grew up as a Gen Xer. You know, doctors come in the room, they let everybody else do their prep work. They're the only ones authorized to sign a script to give you a pharmaceutical or run a test. So um, that's how it works. And well, I, um, and they I, found I, a better way. Yeah, I read an interesting uh, opinion piece a couple of weeks ago saying that most doctors aren't burnt out. They're suffering from moral injury, which is that they <laughs> went into this business to help people and they, they're incented or required to spend just a couple of minutes and to be focused on paperwork as opposed to what they, what they would dearly love to do is spend 15, 20, 30 minutes with a patient, get to know them and have an impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm excited about direct primary care. I think uh, everybody's kind of putting their own spin on it. There's an exciting model out here in Southern California, transcend onsite care where they're combining it with pharmacy benefit management. And I go, well, hold on, you know, PBMs are getting a bad name right now because they're supposed to be advocates P for the PBMs? employer. Pharmacy benefit managers, you know, okay. which are supposed to be there to help a company reduce overspending on, on pharmaceuticals and can we get generics instead of paying the premium. But what's come to light is a lot of them have uh, rebates. So they're steering you to a certain medication because they're making more money off it on the backside. So we're seeing the uh, another middleman, if you will, a very expensive middleman, the PBM really come under fire, which is a good thing. And I think we'll probably start that process over. The one thing you can say you know, politics aside about the Trump administration, as much as President Trump's a free market capitalist, he, he has been hard on uh, pharma. And I think everyone appreciates that because everyone needs medication at some point in time. So as much as he's pro-industry, uh, he's really held uh, pharmaceutical industry accountable. We've seen that before. And they say a lot of things to get people off their back, like, oh, we won't raise prices for the rest of the year. Well, we're halfway through the year, and January 1st isn't too far away. So traditionally, they say that, and then on January 1st, you get a bunch of rate hikes. So we'll see how it goes this time around. We're hopeful for more. Uh-huh. And so you, you mentioned the uh, the cartel. I guess that would be like the, the BUCA, the big yeah. insurance companies. So I guess most most people um, who aren't insured with by their company in a, in a self-insured plan have to deal with what Blue Cross, uh, Aetna, you, um, United, and what's the? Yeah, you Cigna. got Blue Cross, Blue Shield, United, uh, Cig Cigna, Cigna Aetna. Aetna, and uh, I think HealthNet gets tagged on there sometimes too. Okay, so. so if you if that's you, if you if you're if those are your insurance, if you have the card in your wallet with one of those, what can a an ordinary citizen do, a, a consumer of healthcare, do to lower? their costs or to, to, to deal intelligently 
because you know we hear stories about insurance companies turning things down yeah. or sending sending you places where you don't need to go. Like what's what you know? I know you've got this book coming out in January. Can you give us a couple of of, of nuggets? Sure. And one of the things I just lived that really isn't even in my book is I needed to get an MRI. So I called and said, "Hey, I'm paying cash. What's the rate?" And they said three fifty. And I called back an hour later, didn't tell them my name, and said, "Here's my in." Or I didn't tell them my name on the cash rate call. Called him back an hour later, gave him my insurance card, and they said it was going to be about eighteen hundred dollars. That's just my share. And then the the insurance company was getting probably double that. So you know that begs a lot of questions. So um, that's one thing. So call and ask about cash rates. But the number one thing that your listeners can do uh, when they are uh, covered by one of the bucas, which most Americans are, there are some new alternative um, uh, plans coming out, which are really exciting, and they rely a little bit more on telehealth, and you can get immediate access, things like that. But if you are with the buca, which most Americans are, number one thing I would focus on is um, is what we call local medical tourism is uh, those preferred providers or in-network providers oftentimes afford you a much lo less copay than if you go to uh, an out-of-network facility. And what you might be surprised to learn is if you had a procedure done at Hospital A, which is in-network, it would cost your company $20,000. If you decided to go out-of-network because it's local, it's better, your doctor's there, whatever you perceive it to be, uh, it could cost your company $80,000. Even though it might only cost you 1000 more, it could cost them 80000 more. So I always tell people, go ask. Go ask the question. And if you find out there's a $60,000 delta, why don't you say to them, hey, will you pay my, my entire copayment if I go to Hospital A? Because it's still going to save you $58,000 if you do. And that's called local medical tourism. And my friend David Contorno, who's well-known on LinkedIn for being a, a critic of the Bucas and others, um, he uh, has a great story about how he went from uh, North Carolina all the way to uh, the surgery center of Oklahoma to have a surgery done because it was cheaper, even after he paid for two plane tickets for he and his wife. Uh, but he also said, Josh, in the in the you know unofficial research I've done, it's usually about 35 miles that people have to drive to get to that preferred uh, provider, which is less than most people drive to work every day. So uh, it's something to think about. Now, one of the things that I've heard from people and I know from like books like Dave Chase's book, uh, CEO's Guide to uh, Restoring the American Dream, is that often you call up and the the medical facility has no idea how much it costs and they don't even they don't even understand the question. Well, that's by design. And you asked earlier about who I speak to and what I speak about. And, and, I, and I'll answer that question now. As I left the hospital C-suite five years ago and began speaking, I was one of the first folks that really was requested to speak on hospital readmission prevention because the Affordable Care Act uh, had a readmission prevention penalty, which was new and nobody knew about it. So I wrote a book for the healthcare executive trade. Uh, it was their bestseller for the year. And so I hit the road, started speaking about it, started getting such good feedback on the stories I was sharing and my ability to entertain and educate. Uh, people started calling me an edutainer and a futurist. And so I just said, hey, I'm going to do this full time. But I want to learn to entertain people. I want to be the main stage speaker. I want to make people laugh. I, I, and with all due respect to other public speakers, I didn't want to be the guy that said, hey, here's three keys to live a better life. I wanted to be the guy that said, hey, here's three things you can do to save yourself or your family $5,000 a year. But but at the same time, have them go, that was the funniest, most entertaining speaker I've seen in a long time. But man, he gave me these really three simple ideas I can use to save thousands of dollars. That was pretty cool. And so I've been working hard on doing that. And when Forbes called, that certainly helped. I teach at the University of Southern California. 
uh, haven't been a CEO and now a two-time bestseller. I have all this uh, street cred is what I call it to get up there and say, hey, man, I've learned a little bit along the way. So let me share that with you. So um, when, when, you, when you hear Dave Chase and others and Dave's great, you know, he wrote that guide for folks that are really serious about, um, you know, making a difference in their business. It, it's a it's a tough read. You got to really take your pen out, take notes, understand it, read through it a few times. You got to have a deep understanding of finances. You got to be really committed to make it happen. But when you are, that's the guy to do it. And Dave's a good friend. I admire him a lot. He's taught me a lot. I give him a lot of credit in writing my book. My book is more kind of for the starter that gets the wet your palate. So you will then go get Dave's book and say, hey, we got to take this seriously. Uh, but Dave's really a, kind of a leader in that area. But in terms of hospital transparency, there's a story I tell. Before I was even a hospital CEO, uh, my wife and I were debating where to have our third child and because uh, we just moved back to Southern California. And I went into both hospitals, and neither of them would give me the rates on what it would cost to have a baby there. And uh, that's when I joked that I heard uh, for the first time the six words that, that killed American healthcare, which is your insurance will pay for it. You know, and, and it's always, pre, you know, preceded by don't worry, your insurance will pay for it. So um, it's by design. Uh, the Affordable Care Act included a, um, a requirement for hospital pricing transparency, which none of the hospitals adhered to because there was no penalty if they didn't. Uh, but just this year, earlier in 2018, there was another transparency initiative passed by Congress that's going to penalize hospitals if they don't share rates. But but let there be no doubt, Howard, that that's just fuzzy math, right? Because what hospitals do when they do give you rates, and most recent stats show less than 25% of hospitals still will provide you their rates. Wait, but what one, they'll say is... So but, only one quarter of hospitals will, will tell you how much it costs to have something done in their in their. That's right. And there's and there's not for profits that are, you know, specifically there to require hospitals to post their prices and they still don't. But here's the here's the point. Oh, but we can't guarantee you those rates because it's up to the doctor and the anesthesiologist when you're in the OR to decide what code it's going to be. So this is just a guesstimate. Isn't that a great business? I mean, what other business in America is there where you as the customer are unaware of your price and you can't be guaranteed a price before you go in and afterwards when you're told what it is you really have no uh, process to question it or to say hey was that even necessary in fact most industries real estate and finance it's it's actually the opposite where the seller has to guarantee you in writing they won't do a bait and switch right so there's so much wrong with healthcare uh, it's a system broken beyond repair the hospitals and insurers have gotten away with whatever they've wanted to. They have the strongest lobbies. And we finally reached a point where American businesses and individuals can no longer afford health care. We've reached our tipping point. I'm blessed that Forbes reached out to me last year to write this book because 2018 is the year that America declared war on health care affordability. And if you haven't checked it out, check out health-wealth. Uh, you can go to my website, health-wealth.com. And there's all kinds of resources. You can do an assessment. You can you can take the interactive steps. You can check out my YouTube channel at Dr. Josh Luke. There's all kinds of different resources to get you going down this path. Okay, great. So you mentioned um, this readmission prevention effort. What's the significance of hospital readmission? Why is that something we worry about? Well, I touched on it earlier briefly, but um, but let me just touch on it again. So prior to the Affordable Care Act, if you had come into my hospital, Howard, and then uh, I discharged you. Uh, I would have gotten full payment even if you came back the next day and I started over. I'd get full payment for both. That was a pretty good gig for me, especially because it wasn't criteria-based. As the CEO of the hospital, I would just say, hey, just admit them. We'll figure out the rest later. So this is like when my car broke down and they fixed it. 
And then the next day, something else broke. And like, I suspect, I suspected that this, that this, this shop like broke the next thing so they could have like a cash cow. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So, so I'm hospital, hospital, re, so readmissions is, is basically whatever we did didn't work. So you're going to pay us to do it, to do something else or to do it again. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, how, we're, we're rewarding that's the outcomes the we don't worked. want. That's how the system worked. And in the Affordable Care Act, there was a penalty program to try and discourage that. It was very punitive. It was completely contradictory to how hospitals get reimbursed. So it was a big deal. Everybody tried to ignore it. Uh, but over time, the penalties started to stack up. So hospitals had to start paying attention to it. Um, so, yeah, it's it's called the hospital readmission penalty. Let me tell you a quick story, though, that helps, helps explain why. And I, I teach at USC. I teach grad students. And this is the first story I start with. I say, hey, guys, let me, let's talk real quickly about the hospital. I'm a hospital CEO. I'm going to hire a physician group, a group of doctors, emergency doctors, to staff my emergency room. So if you or somebody else comes into the ED, they evaluate you and decide if you need to be admitted or sent home. In that proposal, you send me, what do you think I'm looking for? Because my students raise their hand and say quality doctors, board-certified doctors, local doctors. And I say, no, 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 no. Yeah, we'll put that stuff on the bottom of the page after you convince me you're the one to hire. But the only thing I need to hear for you to convince me to hire you is that you're going to put more heads in my beds than any other group. You're going to justify admitting as many patients as possible because that's how I get paid and that's how I paid you. We're going to run as many tests as we can. We're going to find anything we can to uh, to put Howard in the gray area that says now we can admit him and get paid and nobody can ask questions. And that's how the model worked prior to uh, the Affordable Care Act. And the Affordable Care Act really said, hey, doctors, you guys are great, but we no longer trust you. Hey, hospitals, nursing homes, home health providers, we no longer trust you. So from now on, if a patient doesn't meet this criteria, we will not pay you if you admit them and provide them care. That's essentially the the major change that took place in healthcare with the Affordable Care Act. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh, so... You mentioned, you know, healthcare is broken. We've declared war on healthcare costs. So if you're an employer, uh, we got to read your your existing book and and take steps to to rationalize healthcare costs. And how can how can consumers like join the barricades and join the front lines? What are some simple things we can do? Maybe not necessarily for ourselves, but if we're sort of mission driven to to look out for the greater good, what are, what are some ways that people can get involved? Well, so in my book, Health, Wealth, is Healthcare Bankrupting Your Business, it's called Nine Steps to Financial Recovery. And what I basically teach employers is here are the things you need to do for your employees to help them become engaged healthcare consumers. I call it an EHC. You shop for houses, you shop for cars, why don't you shop healthcare for goodness sake, it's your body. So I basically put the burden on employers to say, help your employees understand how important this is because it's going to save you all money. And when you've done that, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the steps we've talked about, was, which is let's get their full genome sequence, their DNA test, so they know which medications work and which ones don't. Let's get them a integrative medicine or functional medicine consult so they can see if they're suiting certain foods or lifestyles that they can adhere to that will help them stay healthier and avoid chronic disease. Let's see if we have any disease-specific care management programs like for diabetics and others that we as a company can implement. Uh, diabetes is such a, an obvious example of something that can be, uh, you can put it off and avoid it uh, when living a healthier lifestyle. So these are things that, that I encourage in my uh, employer focus book, but they're all 
getting back to the employee focusing on becoming an EHC. And of course, we talked earlier about local medical tourism too. Don't just go to the biggest, shiniest hospital or mm -hmm. provider when you have a choice because you've been duped into believing that your insurance will pay for it. The reality is whatever that costs your employer that year is going to be passed on to you the next year. Gotcha. So can I quibble with a couple of things just to kind of ex sure. exp explore them? So w one is this idea of the engaged healthcare consumer. And it's true, you should, you shop for everything else. So if I go online and I'm looking for a blender, then I can just look for, you know, the, the, the cheapest blender from a place that I trust. And if I'm shopping for a, you know, a Ford Mustang, I can just go to three or four dealerships and spec it out. But healthcare is not just about dollars, right? It's also about quality. And it's really hard, if not impossible, to get quality data. How, how, how can we become engaged healthcare consumers without a shit ton of, of education? Yeah, so that's a great question. And interestingly enough, there's no evidence that in healthcare price has any correlation to quality. In fact, what little evidence there is kind of points in the other direction. And what I mean by that is those doctors who have engaged in the conversation with their patients about affordability, about improved care coordination and communication, are also the same doctors who tend to um, show that same sense of commitment when it comes to quality. So uh, the federal government's worked really hard to have a bunch of different quality measures, but really the reality is um, sometimes it's just uh, community-based. You know, uh, when people ask me, hey, Josh, how do I choose a provider when I decide to go in, in this direction or that direction? I say, well, I always look for people that have been in your community for a length of time because you have all these big players coming out of Silicon Valley. They just go this venture capital that say they're the best at what they do, even though they've never even done it for more than eight months. I'd rather have somebody that's been in my community forever, whether they have venture capital or not, where I can call a couple buddies and say, hey, you went to this doctor. How'd that go? Or you had your procedure done there. How'd that go? And that's really what it comes down to is uh, I find that a lot of post-acute providers tell me that the majority of their business comes from uh, referrals come from Facebook. And I say, well, wait a minute, you know all these people? And they say, no, they know somebody that knows me, which gives them the confidence to at least reach out to me and say, hey, I've heard good things, tell me more. And so I think becoming an engaged healthcare consumer involves all those things, Howard, which is using those resources at uh, Medicare.gov, um, asking the provider, whether it's a doctor or a facility, to provide you data, but also just uh, socially engaging in the community to find out which doctors and hospitals are present, which ones are reputable, and keeping your finger on the pulse, even on social media and in the news. Yeah, my worry about that is if it, it, it becomes a likability contest as opposed to, you know, the, act, the actual outcomes, whether... You know, so yeah, but at the same time, you know, uh, perception is reality in many cases. And what I mean by that is, you know, oftentimes I tell people, home-based home, home -based providers in particular, they go, oh, the patient was happy. And I say, well, you, you've totally missed the boat. The patient's not the one you got to keep happy. They're an aging senior whose voice kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's the alpha daughter that cares for them that you have to keep happy. You know, she needs to be or he needs to be the one that is happy. And so they go on Yelp and they go other places. And, and, you know, I'm not a big fan of Yelp when there's five or less um, uh, inquiries. I'm not a big fan of Yelp or any inquiries when they're all positive, unless it's hundreds. Um, but I am a fan of a comprehensive platform where people can openly exchange 
their experiences. Yeah. Sure, but what about that- what about the case where and we, you know this is sort of a classic? The patient comes in, wants antibiotics, and they want a pill, and the doctor to make them happy and to make the the pharmaceutical rep happy and to make their uh, whoever's you know looking at all the numbers happy gives them the pill as opposed to the doctor who says no you don't need a pill here it's a viral infection or let's wait a couple of days or let's you know let's change your diet and the person goes away unhappy so like isn't there isn't there still a big we don't we still need to to educate consumers on what actually constitutes quality healthcare before we can just let them leave Yelp reviews yeah, and I think we're moving in that direction. I think we're on the same page here, which is it's a comprehensive compilation of data, which includes all of these things. And and even to your point, now they're going to start uh, reporting the doctors, how much medication the doctor's prescribing, which medications are being prescribed, particularly because of the opioid epidemic. Um, and so I, I think your point is well taken that we need more data. We're working towards more data. And right now, that's all the more reason that uh, individuals need to engage and use what data they have in okay. uh, all data sources. Gotcha. So my, my second quibble is about this idea of DNA testing. Okay. Uh, so for, first of all, I'm terrified by companies having access to this kind of data. Um, I'm just in the middle of a book called um, Weapons of Math destruction that talks about sure. the harm that that uh, that big data has done because it, the algorithms have been programmed by by faulty humans but now there's no more transparency in it but but also like I don't I don't see a ton of evidence that there's very much genomic medicine that has done any good what what do you see that makes you so bullish on it you know um pharmacogenetics is real uh, I've had patients come up to me and say, you know, uh, for 30 years I struggled and as soon as I got my um, my DNA makeup and was able to take it to my doctor, uh, it showed that the exact medication they kept prescribing me more and more of to treat, treat me was actually the problem all along. Um, I believe that, um, first of all, in my book I suggest it as a voluntary. We offer this to employees. It's private. You know, it's completely... The employer just pays for it as a benefit. Uh, but really, even then, people and I and I saw this firsthand. I don't have time to tell the story, but I saw this four years ago when when Medicare started covering DNA testing, where the doctors looked at it with fear in their eyes and said, I wish I hadn't seen this because it is real. And I now know which medications will work on my patient. But the problem is I send this patient from this hospital, to that nursing home. They don't have electronic medical records to keep track of it. The minute they unprescribe what I prescribe, and there's an adverse reaction. This patient's going to die. We're all going to get sued and they're going to win because we have no defense. And when I saw that reaction from doctors, I said, wow, this technology is really valid. It is really real. So what I believe needs to happen, and still we're just getting to the point where we can communicate, uh, is the patient needs to own it. And what I suggest to people is get your DNA test, put it on your phone, and we have the doctor say, hey, what does this mean to you? I got this test, and it shows here that Tylenol doesn't work on me, but Advil does. And it suggests that based on my uh, metabolic makeup that Advil at this this, uh, dosage is the most appropriate um, dosage for me. Uh, What do you think? And have a conversation with your doctor. Your doctor is likely not going to bring that to you unless you have a chronic disease and have been down the path for a number of months and are very frustrated because it is a newer technology that takes some explaining to folks. But um, like nutrigenetics, for example, is still a, a school of thought that's not perfected. 
But as you know, uh, when you live, you know, functional and, and integrative medicine lifestyle, it's certainly not going to hurt you to experiment with which foods your body's reacting to more appropriately than others. Well, with pharmacogenetics, it's a true science now. With nutrigenetics, we're still trying to figure it out to a certain extent. And so I'm a huge believer in getting your DNA test on a voluntary basis, you owning it, keeping it on your phone, you bringing it up to your doctor, and, and really demanding your doctor pay attention to it if, if they're you know, bought off by big pharma then, and, and they don't want to play ball, then say, hey, I'm going to have to go somewhere else because you're ignoring my personal DNA makeup, uh -huh. uh, which says that these medications aren't going to cooperate with my body very well. Gotcha. So, th so this question may be out of the scope of your experience, given that you're not a, a medical professional, but I'm really curious, like, what's what are the data sets that that are valid and reliable around you know, this this gene sequence says Advil versus Tylenol and this particular dosage. It's, it seems like we're, we'd be far away from having anything reliable. Am I wrong? Uh, not from the experts I spoke to. Uh, the, the, and they weren't people that were working for uh, the seller, if you will. They were scientists. They were doctors. They were MDs who said, Josh, this is absolutely 100% real. I've seen it work. The problem is the delivery model is not ready for it, uh -huh. and, which I saw firsthand. And so, and also, uh, big pharma is uh, obviously trying to put the skids on it as much as they can, which they've been proven to be very good at. Um, what's what's what what do they not like about it? Well, <laughs> it's going to be able to say to drive you to generics that are uh, obviously going to reduce their margin significantly, as opposed to taking the bait on the advertising and the, and the physicians who've been compensated to prescribe the higher cost medications. Because uh -huh. I, I would think that, um, you know, with so with so much blowback against pharma, that if they could come up with this algorithm and that people would have fewer, you know, drug interactions and, and side effects and that it would so it would sort of, you know, make it seem scientific again, that they'd be all over that. Um, say that question again. Yeah, I was just thinking that if, you know, if I was a pharma executive and all of a sudden you could show me a technology that would help me prescribe drugs with, that would reduce side effects, that I'd be all over that. But you're saying that the, the loss of margin over, over um, switching to generic would overcome would, – uh, would So I have a that. chapter in my prior book, Execute, a former hospital CEO tells all on what's wrong with American healthcare, um, called The Quota-Based Physician. And it describes the physician whose top priority, which I witnessed on multiple occasions. And in fact, when I was speaking about this at a conference in D.C. about four years ago, some folks from the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission and also from CMS said, hey, uh, we've never heard that. We'd like to hear more. And I said, well, as a CEO of three safety net hospitals, I, I saw these doctors that nobody else wanted running amok in my hospital. And they're going to keep your mom five days in the hospital simply because they get 55 bucks a day even if she was really ready to go home after three days. And they said, oh, that's awful. And I said, well, you haven't even heard the start of it yet. They're being paid $4,000 a month by the long-term acute care hospital across the street to keep their beds full as their medical director. So your mom's now going to get a 25-day all-expense-paid trip by Medicare to a germ-infested, ICU-like long-term acute care. And they said, oh, show me the evidence of that. And I said, well, why don't you just run the test and your quantitative data will show it in these two or three doctors, which it did. And I said, guess what? The story is not over. Mom still gets two or three weeks in a nursing home after that because any doctor that's getting paid off by LTAX is getting paid off 
by two or three nursing homes as well to keep their beds full. So before the doctor even goes to work on January 1st, he's making 10 grand a month or, or, or she's making 10 grand a month just on medical directorships with the assumption that he or she's going to keep those post-acute beds full. So now as a hospital CEO, I don't have the ability to manage a doctor to do the right thing in my hospital because his or her goal and incentive is to keep everybody institutionalized so he or she can make three times as much that year. And in my book, Execute, it has a grid that shows you the exact dollars when they do this, that they're going to make uh, a lot more money, three times as much, if they're doing this than than if they do the right thing by your your loved one. Okay, so and, and so, so yes, the answer is yes. I'm trying Doctors to wrap my I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So this is like I hire an employee who actually works for a supplier, right? So they get they get I'm paying them a salary, thinking that they're working for my company, but they're actually getting as much or more or a significant percentage of that from the supplier through kickbacks, as long as I keep buying paper from Dunder Mifflin and, uh, and, bever and beverages, uh, you know, from, uh, from the, the local Coca-Cola delivery company. Absolutely. They're going to get rebates. They're going to get kickbacks. And, and also, you missed one critical thing on the pharmacy side. Oh, and you're not allowed to carry that generic if you are going to offer our medication. Can't be on your formulary. Wow. So... Yeah, big pharma, is, I would say, is much or more of a cartel than, than the insurers, but the insurers kind of have that nickname already. So on page, um, let's see what the page number is here on my book, Execute, page 30 and 31, the quota-based physician that I just described, uh, based on a census of, I think, 10 patients a day, would make $672,000 based on the model I just described you that year off of Medicare reimbursements. But if, you, if, they, if the same doctor with the same... Uh, census um, did the right thing by your mom and mine when they were admitted to the hospital. They would have only made two hundred seventy-eight thousand dollars by sending them home and saying, "Hey, just take this medication and you'll be better in a couple days." So you can see that the incentives aren't aligned. Wow. Now I tell I tell you know people that I consult with to always check out like the ProPublica database, Dollars for Docs. Is are you familiar with that? No. So it's it's basically what every doctor has to declare when they get money from a pharmaceutical company or a device manufacturer, and it goes into the sure. database. You can look it up. Sure. I'm wondering if any of this money goes into that database, or is this all opaque even to that? Because I had no well, idea. It was, but now there's a physician scorecard is the name of it, okay? And the physician scorecard includes the many medications they're referring, uh, what they're posting. There's a, a penalty now called um, – uh, Medicare spending per beneficiary, MSPB, and they measure that by physician as well. And that measures how much patients that go to that doctor, how much Medicare spends on post-acute care. And so they're being watched now. Uh -huh. and, and I've been in the room with uh, the feds when they're, when they're interested in these things, and all it is is a printout of an Excel spreadsheet of physician claims. There's not much qualitative data to go with it. They just bring a big stack and say, it looks like this doctor likes to prescribe things. You say, yeah, let's uh -huh. talk about it. Gotcha. Wow. Well, this, is, this has been a, uh, a real Alice in Wonderland tour for me because I, I keep telling people, it's like I knew things were bad, but I didn't know they were this bad. But <laughs> like – the your um, your stories and your experience from being on the inside is shocking. 
Um, so the, the book people should get right now is Health Wealth. Um, and health, yeah, health from Forbes. From, from, from Forbes Press. And they can follow you on LinkedIn. And you're Dr. Josh Luke. And um, you have a website also, drjoshluke.com. Yeah, drjoshluke.com or health-wealth.com. I'm on Twitter at Josh Luke, the number four health, Josh Luke for health. And on LinkedIn, which is my primary platform that I'm active on daily, it's Dr. Josh Luke. Great. So I imagine a lot of people are going to want to follow you to, to find out what they can do to help their businesses, to help their families and themselves, and to help our, our country escape and uh, – you know, join join the battle to um, to make 2018 the year we we fix healthcare. So I really yeah, it's, yeah, let's do let's declare war on healthcare. We need to. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time today. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. And uh, if you do uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, let me know that you heard me on Howard's show, so I can let him know. Okay. Thanks so much. That'd be great. Take care, Josh. All right. I hope you found that useful. I hope you found it empowering. And I hope it wasn't too depressing because there are so many things that we can do as individuals and as advocates for our loved ones, especially around lifestyle. Like all this economic stuff is, of course, of crucial importance in changing the system. We get to eat plants. We get to move our bodies. We get to deal with the stress in our lives to get good sleep. We understand then most illness is preventable. It's most of it caused by our lifestyles. So to a certain extent, we get a get-out-of-jail-free card to a lot of the things that, that happen to people in the healthcare system. But of course, we can't prevent everything, and we may end up a patient one day, and this is good information to know. So if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to learn more about Dr. Luke, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, which is plantyourself.com slash three. One zero, And as he suggested, if you get in touch with him, let him know you heard him on this show. Maybe we can, we can get him back uh, when he got more to say. If you're new to this show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by, first and foremost, just writing that review for iTunes for Apple Podcasts. That helps us so much to spread the word. Second, you can share this episode and others on social media. Just sort of let people know that you listen to the Plant Yourself podcast, and maybe they should as well. And if you have some discretionary cash lying around and you would like to become a patron of the show, that is extremely appreciated. It allows me to share the burden of running this show, so I'm not the only one putting money into it through equipment, through hosting, through promotion, through the time I put in but it becomes a community effort. If you'd like to do that, you can go to patreon.com and just find Plant Yourself and become a ongoing monthly sustainer of the show. You can also just go to plantyourself.com and look for the Patreon button on the right sidebar. All right, in garden news, we discovered we got like three or four Napa cabbages. So my daughter and I are going to tackle some kimchi this week and... Uh, if it works, uh, I can post some pictures at Plant Yourself. That'd be a very cool new thing. I haven't fermented uh, in the Korean style yet. In running news, this is my first week back uh, to a full training schedule after the 50K. And so I'm scanning the horizon for my next race. All right, I'd like to thank 
Will Ridenour for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace, as the theme music for this show. Check out willridenour.com or find him on Spotify or any of the online streaming services to support the work of independent artists. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cop, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Volkanovsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Felton, Victoria Dolomanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte. David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Joe and Karen Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Lee Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Linneran, Brian Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Ramsey, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corker, and Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Organ, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Sean Ruthless, Julia Watkins, Brad O'Connell, Brian Sheridan. Shannon Hirschman, Kate Rolls, Linda Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedda Gardiza, Susan Walk, Honey Hayline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Villa L, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Cherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Mirani, Karina Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Corral, Kevin Paul, Luke Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, and Allery Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitz, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel. Deb Casilla, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cartz, Deanne Bishop, Bilberry Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, and Tracy Gulledge for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenour for allowing me to use his beautiful song Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenour.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mauro, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barnes, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fronsek, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lacerte, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The equally mysterious Tracy Z of Eva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Molly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, of Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Colm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Sommermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dave McCorney, Stephen Lehman. 
Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>